right. Good morning again. I'm Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my great privilege to bring to us God's word today as we continue in our Psalm series. And so today, Psalm 137, verses 1 through 9, let's give our full attention to God's word. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. You know, in the most recent season of American Idol, the winner was uh, someone named Iam Tongi. Uh, he auditioned with the song Monsters by James Blunt, and this audition tape has become their most widely watched video on their YouTube page with 20 million views. Uh, James Blunt, he wrote the song Monsters to express his feelings about his father as his father battled a fatal illness. And the participant, this uh, contestant of American Idol, his rendition of the song was especially touching and especially moving as he dedicated it to his dad. His dad who had passed away a few months before his audition and was the one who got him into music. And so why was this video the most watched video? I think my guess is besides him being such a talented singer, it's a video filled with so much raw emotion where you feel it in your soul. You get a sense that you can understand part of the grief and the pain as he sings this song. Right? Music, it creates a powerful experience often. And this is why there's entire genres dedicated to when you feel sad and you're hurting and you want to sing about it, right? You think about R&B, one of my favorite genres, rhythm and blues, an outlet where so many channel their pain, their heartbreak, their sadness. Well, the Psalms, they're prayers, but they're used as songs, and they served as the songbook for the people of God in the Old Testament, and it'd be used for worship. And in this book of worship, it captured the full range of emotions that people have under the sun. But much of contemporary Christian music and worship has often left a genre out. And that genre is lament. Despite the Psalms of lament being one of the most common and frequent Psalms that you'll find I think so often we don't hear and see it in the churches around us today, and we need to recapture a healthy diet, I think, of these psalms. Because as one theologian says, our diet of upbeat songs and positive testimonies, it doesn't meet the needs of those who suffer disappointment 
or ill health or persecution. And many need this opportunity to express their grief and their pain in the context of worship. And today I want us to unpack such a psalm, a psalm of lament, Psalm 137. And I want to begin by posing this question to us, a question you may have asked, how can I sing when I don't like where I'm at? How can I sing when I don't like where I'm at? Psalm 137 opens up, recapturing why the Israelites are in this situation. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. You see, the Israelites, they are in Babylon. They are exiles now because of their disobedience to God, their unfaithfulness. That as God sent prophet after prophet to tell them, repent, turn back to me, they rejected this message and they found themselves dealing with the consequences. Babylon was a means by which this judgment happened, a cruel empire who defeated the Israelites. And these Israelites now find themselves at the waters of Babylon, weeping and remembering what once was. Zion, the holy hill, city of Jerusalem, desecrated. And it's interesting because Zion, this title for their place, Psalm 132, just a few chapters before, it's entitled, the Lord has chosen Zion. And it was a place where God dwelt, where he met all their needs. A place that was once so prosperous, filled with singing and buzz and joy. And oh, now how the times have changed. How joy has now turned into mourning and sadness. How Zion's song has been now cut off. And to add insult to injury, in verse 3, their captors, their tormentors required of them song and mirth, right? Why don't you sing us one of those songs, right? Those happy songs that you guys always sing. Why don't you do that now? Praise God right now. And you can imagine the pain and the shame. Verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I think a lot of us, we maybe not have gone through something this intense, but we understand a little of this feeling when it's hard to sing these happy and joyous songs. Maybe we feel that way. Maybe you feel that way even at church as you're going through such a difficult circumstance now. A situation where you might feel pressured to be happy, to put on a fake smile and pretend that everything is okay when you know very well that it is not. Yeah, grief and sadness, it can be awkward at times, especially for the one experiencing it where you wonder, are other people feeling uncomfortable around me? They view me maybe as a downer or a buzzkill where you might hear, really, you're, you're still there? I thought you'd be moved on by now enough time as shouldn't have you shouldn't you have gotten over it i think it's ironic that followers of jesus the man of sorrows well acquainted with grief so often are those who have the lowest threshold for grief and pain 
where we get impatient around us. And I think some of that maybe comes out into the culture of even the songs we might sing in praise, that they're disproportionately upbeat and triumphalistic and happy. And we're told to leave our troubles at the door, put a smile on and sing with greater enthusiasm. And this, these are often said with good intentions, that's for sure, but it's still hard to hear for those who find themselves in the pit. And just as there are many psalms of joy and triumph, that is true, I do think we need to recapture a healthy understanding of lament, that we can be okay with the grief expressed in praise. Psalm 137, verses five to six, it goes on to say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And so you'd think that singing a song of Zion would help to keep the memory of her alive. And yet the psalmist doesn't do that. The psalmist feels like that's inappropriate it, to the point where to sing in such a circumstance before our captors in this way, to sing in that way would imply I'd forgotten Jerusalem. It would imply that the situation didn't bother me. It would be as if I went to a funeral singing and dancing. It just is inappropriate. It doesn't make sense to do that. You don't move on that quickly from things that meant so much to you. And the psalmist is saying, in some sense, may I never get over this because Jerusalem has everything to do with where I've come from, my people, my God. And so let my right hand forget its skill if I should try and play the lyre right now. Let me go mute if I should try to sing as if everything is fine when it's not. You see, Psalm 137, it validates that feeling of pain and grief. And it helps us understand so often why it might be hard for you to worship, right? It's hard to worship through tears. It's hard to worship when you have a lump in your throat. And I think that's a problem that sometimes we feel we have to push ourselves beyond our tears. We have to ignore them. And in doing so, we've silenced one of the most important languages of worship we find all over the Psalms, and that is lament. When it's too hard to worship through your tears, instead, why don't we worship with them? The Lord wants our true face, not our best face, not our most presentable face. We don't have to even say face, but we can come before him even with a teary face, and know that he's pleased by that. And that's worship. So how can I sing when I don't like where I'm at? Well, you can pray Psalm 137. You can sing about how it's really hard to sing. And you can sing your heart out even when what comes out of it is pain and hurt. Now this begs the question, just how far can we go with expressing everything in our heart, our honesty? How far is too far? Is there a line that can be crossed because Psalm verses, uh, the psalmist in verses seven and nine says perhaps one of the most troublesome verses that we find in all the scriptures where most churches will not mention this. There are verses maybe you'll never hear. Some non-Christians might use this 
as, why, as to why Christians are barbaric or immoral. But here it is. And this presents uh, a second question I, I have for us. How can I sing when I feel like cursing? Verses 7 to 9, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, and how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. And then verse 8 and 9, some of the most troublesome verses. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Whoa, right? This kind of language. It startles us. And today I want to explore this today. But before we dive uh, in, I I do want to explain some of the context here of what's happening. Right, verses 7 to 9, the psalmist, he he turns his attention now to the ones that are responsible for this new normal they're in. First, the Edomites. The Edomites were uh, long-standing enemies from the very beginning, the descendants of Esau who cheered on the Babylonians as they destroyed Jerusalem. And throughout Israel's history, they had so many conflicts with this group of people, many wars, many battles. And then in verse 8, the psalmist shifts his attention to the ones responsible for the actual destruction of Jerusalem, the actual work of destroying the holy city. And he says what he says, verse 8 to 9, right? Verse 9 being, Dash them against the rocks. This psalm is known as an imprecatory psalm. And I do want to unpack this genre that is often troublesome to many. And I want us to understand how we can use these now. Do they have use for us, for you, as you read them in your devotional time? How do you understand these psalms? And so in precatory psalms, I want to define it first for us. It's a speech act that calls for, demands, requests, or expresses a wish for divine judgment and vengeance to befall an enemy, whether an individual or corporate entity. In some sense, you can say uh, imprecation is just fancy for curse. It's to curse people. And these psalms are a subcategory of the psalms of lament. You might think if the overarching emotion of lament is sadness, grief, imprecatory psalms are filled with anger. You might think of R&B as for lament here, we, we have punk rock, all right? Injustice, corruption in the face of abuse of power position you get this eruption of anger. It's the least common type of psalm, but we see a lot of imprecatory prayers all throughout the Bible, including throughout the New Testament. We see Jesus pronouncing woes or curses upon the scribes, the Pharisees, upon the unrepentant cities in which he did miracles and mighty works. You see him say that about Judas, woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It'd be better if he'd never been born. We see it in Paul too in 1 Corinthians 16, as well as Galatians 1, when he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you heard or received, let him be cursed. 
And in Romans 11.9, Paul even says this, quoting an imprecatory psalm. This is from Psalm 69. Psalm 69, one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament, happens to be an imprecatory psalm. And he says this, when the Jews were opposing the spread of the gospel message, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So clearly, we see this all throughout the Bible. We see it quoted. We see Jesus quoted even on the cross. So how can we properly understand it today? How do we benefit from praying the imprecatory Psalms today? And I want to start for just four things for us on how they benefit first. Use them to express genuine emotion against injustice. Uh, Tim, author Tim Keller, he, he writes about these psalms that they startle us into feeling something of the desperation that produced it, right? It startles us because of the language, right? It, it, it shows and gets, gives us a sense of how desperate these people were. And it keeps us from being complacent about injustice in the world, that in the face of horrendous, atrocious evils and wickedness, that the worst possible response is to feel nothing. The worst possible response is apathy because what must be felt is grief and outrage that in the absence of those emotions, those evil things become okay and tolerable. Status quo. Injustice ought to make us emotional. It demands a strong response that those who commit horrible deeds must and ought to be held accountable. And this captures God's heart. Exodus 22 says in verse 21 and 24, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. You see, these groups of people would have been the most helpless in that kind of a society. A society where one's safety net had everything to do with one's family ties. So much to do with a father or a husband. And so these people would have been the most vulnerable, the most weak, the first to be taken advantage of. And God says to his nation that he's building, he sets this law up saying, you're not going to do that. And if you do, if you fail to take up the cause of the weak and vulnerable, then I will do that. I will defend them myself. And so we see justice, justice at the root is about this retribution principle. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, what is fair? Which is why in verse eight of our Psalm, it read, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Because the Israelites knew very well, you did this, you destroyed us. You took our little ones and you killed them and you dashed them against the rocks. 
And so would that be returned upon you? Blessed, blessed shall he be, but that still sounds kind of strong, right? Happy is the one who dashes your little ones against the rocks. How do we understand that? Can you really be happy about that? And I think what this passage is really trying to get at is to say, happy and blessed are those who put an end to this empire, the Babylonian empire. We see in verse thir- uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 16 of uh, the book of Isaiah, where there's a prophecy against Babylon that reads, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Because the Babylonians were such a wicked people, God says, you will be judged for that as well. And they would, by Cyrus, king of the Medes and Persians, who would come and conquer and overtake Babylon. And you can understand a little bit of how much of the atrocities these Israelites experienced when you hear that when Cyrus conquered them, the Babylonians themselves greeted him not as a conqueror, but as a liberator. In other words, the empire was so bad and wicked that the Babylonians themselves did not want to be under the rule of what was happening amongst the leadership. And so the imprecatory Psalms or these cursing Psalms, you might label them the justice Psalms because they're prayers that God would judge righteously and enact justice, especially on behalf of the weak and the vulnerable. Now, I think part of why these Psalms are maybe so hard for me and you and maybe others to stomach here is that they just feel so strange and unrelatable. And maybe thankfully that owes in large part to the fact we don't know, not many of us know what it's like to be surrounded by foes who seek to kill us. Not many of us know the experience of people who deliberately try and twist our words, who try and mock us. We're not on the run worrying about how much longer do we have to live. And so how do we ourselves make the most of these Psalms? And I was thinking for myself as well, just thinking like, what what could I do to pray this when it just seems so unrelatable? And I think what helps, what we can do with this is that when it's foreign and unrelatable to you, would you remember that there are other Christian brothers and sisters who know this feeling very well. Those in other parts of the world who resonate so deeply with Psalm 137. And if you can't pray it for yourself, would you consider when you come across it to pray it for others, to intercede on their behalf? I think of um, a classmate I had who during seminary, he was, uh, he was a Ukrainian and And now on his Facebook feed, uh, it's been a while since I've taken a look, but in preparation for this message, I I wanted to see what he was up to. And his posts give a lens into life in Ukraine and what that's like. His Facebook cover photo was of a baby killed by Russian soldiers in a maternity hospital. And I was shocked to see that But part of why he put that out there is to say, people so often out of sight, out of mind, they need to see what is happening. 
because we feel so helpless and hopeless, but this is so cruel and evil. Heartbreaking images of violence and death. Street executions of civilians with their hands behind their backs. These atrocities, they stir up feelings, don't they? Of outrage, of anger, where we would want to curse, curse at these injustices. I think of uh, a missionary partner we supported who was in China for some time, and she was part of a network that fell into that network with Early Rain Church. And there's a Facebook page called Prayers for Early Rain Church. And I took a look as well at at that page. And last year in December 2022, here's a post. Praise the Lord. Today, elder so-and-so was released from prison after completing his four-year sentence. He safely returned home to his wife and children. Praise God for the testimony he and his family have borne through these afflictions. Please continue to pray for them and also for Pastor Wang Yi, who completes his nine-year sentence. Uh, Earlier this year, March 21, there was a post that said, in response to two of our church staff being placed under administrative detention, four families being forcibly evicted from their homes, Early Rain Covenant Church is seeking to defend the faith and bear witness to the gospel through legal advocacy. And this is out of a response to March 12th, the week before that post, where it read, Early Rain Covenant Church was raided by police again. A number of their members were taken to the station. Two men forcibly, uh, they were forced out of their homes, and more than 20 were guarded at their homes and forbidden from attending church service. And so when we hear things like this, our hearts break. And I was trying to imagine if on this stage, if police came in the middle of the service to take our leaders, our pastors, some of our staff, some of you, and stopped us from worshiping. These are the things that some of our brothers and sisters the injustices that they face on a regular basis. Hebrews chapter 13, verse three, it reads, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And I think for us, it's so easy to forget that there are others out there who who really struggle who these imprecatory psalms reflect the heartbeat of their lives, it would do us well to remember them and to pray for them when so often we don't understand how we can pray it for ourselves. Secondly, how do we benefit from the imprecatory psalms? Uh, Use them generally, not specifically. I I think a lot of us today, we might misunderstand how to do, uh, how to use these prayers. It's not that we should pray them as we see someone cut, uh, cut us off on the freeway, right? We're not going to be like, Lord, strike them down, right? That, that is not how we ought to pray imprecatory psalms. Or the grumpy waiter maybe who messed up our order, right? You're not going to, Lord, do unto him. And um, Imprecatory psalms are not meant to be used that way, and we... And, we see Jesus' clear commands in the New Testament, right? To love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, 
to pray for those who persecute us. And so we might feel like, isn't there a, a discrepancy? How do we understand how this all fits? Well, don't pray them specifically against individuals because we don't know if certain individuals might change. They might turn. Right? We have the differences between a Judas and a Paul where sometimes people are hardened, but other times people are softened and transformed. God knows who falls into which category and we don't. And so we do not pray and assume and presume who falls into which category. And precatory prayers are thus not to be used selfishly and specifically to be directed against our personal enemies, but they're to be directed generally against the unrepentant enemies of God. And so we pray God would thwart the schemes and the plans and the plots of wicked people, either through conversion or through destruction. In some sense, you might think, man, I don't really, I don't think I've ever prayed something like that. But before you're quick to assume that, I want to turn our attention to Matthew 6, verse 10, Revelation 22, verse 20. These prayers are prayers we pray all the time, right? This is the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last book of the Bible, right? You, he who testifies says these things, surely I'm coming soon. And then the prayer, the cry, come Lord Jesus. If you've ever prayed this, you've prayed a prayer for judgment, for justice. Because justice, judgment, and salvation are two sides of the same coin. That when Jesus returns to save and deliver his people, simultaneously he will come to judge and destroy the wicked. And so a prayer for salvation is a prayer for judgment. Third, how do we benefit used imprecatory psalms to remind us of the reality of spiritual warfare? I came across this interview where uh, Keanu Reeves was being interviewed by Drew Barrymore. And she makes this kind of, they're, they're bantering. She makes this funny comment. This, I think this is a viral video. But she makes this uh, comment, I'm not a lover. I'm a fighter. And then Keanu says, no, no. Because if you're a lover, you got to be a fighter. And she says, how so? And here's the, the viral clip. Because if you don't fight for your love, what kind of love do you have? Right? And he says in his Keanu way, and everyone goes, oh, and he like runs around uh, because he feels a little cringy. But, but everybody, uh, even in the comment section, are like, this is why we love Keanu. And they resonate with that statement. They resonate with it because I think it's true. Right? When we think of the gospel, we often think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. You guys probably know the rest. And we think of God as a lover but not so much as a fighter. But John 3.16, if you look at the first instance glimpse of the gospel, it's Genesis 3.15. And it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is considered the first instance of the good news, the gospel, and it's in the context of a fight of a battle. 
right? The gospel is portrayed in this context of spiritual warfare where the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, this is pointing to Satan and Jesus, where Satan would deliver a blow to Jesus's heel. And it's a heel because even though he dies, Jesus on the cross, he would rise again, but Jesus would deliver that fatal blow to Satan. He would crush his head and we would see that done on the cross. And so this shows us, this happens to demonstrate how much God's love really is, how much, how deep it is, how far and wide it goes for us because he's willing to fight for us. It reminds us the reality of spiritual warfare, who our real enemies are as well. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, behind every earthly enemy of Christ, the real enemy of God, at the end of the day, it's Satan and the demons. And we are caught up in in the mix of all of this. And so any imprecatory psalm we pray can definitely be directed this way. There's none that is too severe that we can pray against Satan and his demons. And lastly, it also reminds us here of our battle against the evil and sin within us, that we wage war against our own flesh. We always start with ourselves. Thomas Brooks, he once said, a sincere Christian hates all sinful ways, but his own first and foremost, his own first and most. To recognize that the sin and the evil and the wickedness in us is where we need to start. That there are many ways that we are part of the problem, that we are complicit in wickedness. And we wanna start there and direct imprecations to those sins, that God would purge us of those temptations and evils in our own hearts. Lastly, how do we benefit from the imprecatory Psalms today? Use them to find peace and relinquish vengeance to the Lord. Romans 12 verse 19, important passage on this. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If we forget God's judgment, it's easy to become hardened and bitter. Because we feel like no one will do it, so I have to do it. Even if we have at times, maybe not the best standard of justice. We want to react in a vigilante-like way. To get back at someone, return evil for evil. And so while imprecatory psalms, when we read them, they might sound harsh, singing and praying them actually makes us less harsh because we're not doing it. We're crying out and allowing God to take care of it. We think of even the the psalms, some of the psalms, imprecatory psalms are sung by David, and this is King David. King David, who has all the power and influence in the world, he could easily go out and take vengeance And yet he doesn't do that. That's revolutionary. Why? 
because he entrusted it to God. And instead, he just cries out. He cries out and he entrusts it to God who will avenge. That God will hold accountable all those who seem to get off easy here. That evil people won't get the last laugh. They won't get the last word. Justice is just a matter of time. And so we can cry out for justice without needing to take justice into our own hands. You know, shortly after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he was a pastor who was uh, executed by the Nazis. He was asked how he could feel love for such evil people. And he says this, it is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the heads of one's enemies, that something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. When we entrust vengeance to the Lord, it, it frees us to open our heads, hearts, and our hands to serve and love and meet the needs of those around us, even our enemies, to return good for evil. And ultimately, we see this modeled by our Lord himself. Jesus, he ended up in the last place anyone would have wanted to be. As he stood outside of Zion, the holy city, when he endured terrible injustices on the cross, rejected, ridiculed, mocked, crucified. Jesus, God's perfect son, he had every right and every reason to call down justice and curses. But he sang a different tune. Father, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in his most weak and vulnerable state? He is met with no answer, with silence. Instead, he's cut down. God's justice falls upon him and it crushes him. And you might wonder, where's the justice in that? He didn't do anything wrong and he didn't. But the justice that we deserved as sinful and wicked, rebellious people, it was served to him in full. God's little one dashed upon the rocks. See, the cross is where justice and mercy converges. And so you can complain that God is too merciful, but you cannot complain that he is unjust because we saw what it looked like upon Jesus. And so you can sing when you feel like cursing because you know the one who was cursed in your place. For all of those who would place their faith and their trust and their hope in him. And for those who do not, who harden their hearts against this savior, the curse continues to remain on them and judgment and justice is coming. A pastor once shared uh, to close, he went to a concert and at this concert, much of the music was soulful and dark. And the artist said to the audience, you know, we sing the blues not to make ourselves sad, but to draw the sadness out to make room for the dance to come in. This morning, you and I, we weep and rage 
not because that's how we want to feel, but we do it to release the pressure valves in our souls and our hearts so that they don't become toxic. And as we vent out the darkness, we make room for good things to come in, good things like hope, forgiveness, love. And as we reflect on Psalm 137, we're reminded today, you and I, that genuine worship can be even done through tears and through anger. At the end of the day, we can leave it all in God's hands to know that he will right all wrongs, that justice and salvation is only a matter of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I don't know how each person comes to you in this room, but you do, and you meet them where they're at, whether it is in a place of joy and mirth or in a place of weeping and rage. We are grateful that what you want most is for us to come honestly before you and to trust in you to know that you will take care of it. I pray this morning, especially for those in pain and suffering, that they would come face to face with your comfort and your peace as they entrust injustice, dealing with injustice into your hands. Thank you for being just. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.